clubhouse. Because if I really were the cold-blooded psychopath you think I am, I would hate you. Oh, not for any of this. No, no, no. No, for destroying my life. 20 years ago, you turned me in. Your own father. You ruined me. And your mother. And you ruined her. But that's not me. The violence, the banter. I see why you like it here. Welcome to the Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Thumb podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking about episode four of season two, Take Your Father to Work Day. Take Your Father to Work Day. What a great title. It was written by Elizabeth Peterson. And just like last week's trade episode, this one was directed by Omar Madha. Is that what we decided on? Madha? I think we said Madha. Until we get him on the show, we're going to go with Madha. So Elizabeth Peterson, she's uh, she's got some some deep bench work here with uh, with Prodigal Son. This is her fourth time back. She wrote Q and A last season again, which was Ainsley's The Surgeon interview episode. She also wrote Death's Door and the season finale, Mike, like Father. This is the second time Death's Door has come up. We it came up when we were talking to Keiko again last week. So that's funny that that episode keeps popping up. The Surgeon interview episode, Q&A, that's a great little Easter egg that Elizabeth wrote that episode because there's Ainsley starts off this episode by talking about how she wants to do part two. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that's Ainsley just calling her own shot, you know, just, just like her <laughs> way of being like, listen, we're going to set up an interview part two. So I have to obviously write that episode. That's just smart, like work. That's protection. just smart writing. Exactly. Way to make yourself indispensable. All right. No one knows the way you do a surgeon interview one-on-one like Elizabeth Peterson. She's right. got to be inside her head. Literally wrote the book on it. So <laughs> stick around until we're done breaking down tonight's episode, guys, because you want to hear our exclusive interview with Michael Potts, who is a fantastic actor who you've probably either seen on Broadway in shows like Book of Mormon. He was in Netflix's 2020 film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Or, man, the guy's been in every major TV show for like the last 20 years. It's going back from like Oz and the Wire to all of the Law and Order franchises. The guy's done it all. Why are we having him on the Surgeon Files? Well, Michael Potts is the one playing Martin's new therapist, Dr. Brandon Marsh. Well, maybe now former therapist after yeah. tonight's episode. Not a good showing for his ethics side. Yeah, it, it was a great interview with Michael. You know, we had a lot of fun with him. We, you know, we spent the first half of the interview, you'll hear, talking about the show, talking about how he got put on it, filming it during COVID times. It's really interesting. This guy is a veteran New York City actor. He he lives in walking distance to Silver Cup Studios. He knows the New York fil- uh, film and TV scene. So it was great kind of getting that vibe from him. I don't exactly agree with his take that Brandon Marsh is a complicated <laughs> character. <laughs> Dude is bad. He's a bad guy. The interview though was fantastic with him, and I'm surprised, like as you know, bred New Yorkers, like uh, you know, tried and true New Yorkers that we are, that we didn't like swap like deli stories, like where our favorite delis and stuff were. Like that's how New York we were getting. Well, it? yeah, I mean, he gave us so much time. So we spent the first like 20 minutes or so talking about the show, but then he let us kind of go off, uh, you know, and we talked about his Broadway career. We talked about um, Rainey's Black Bottom and his experience uh, acting with uh, Chadwick Boseman in that and learning the bass. It was it was just a great far 
far-ranging interview. He was totally open with us, so it was it was a ton of fun to uh, speak to him. I can't wait to have him back at the clubhouse, actually. Yes, for sure. Oh, he's definitely down to come back, I think. I think so. Well, you know, knock on wood, if you guys like Brandon Marsh, you want to see where his character goes, there is a good, there is a, a point of view where you can sympathize maybe with the good doctor in feeling like you just want something you devoted your life to to work. But I don't know. I think the easier take is just that bad dude doing bad things and letting bad things happen at Claremont. So, Before we get started with the discussion for tonight, you should also check out the Spotify playlist that we've created. Um, it's called The Surgeon Files, Songs from Particle Sun. So it's just a little bit of mood music to help you along as you wait the days in between our episodes, or maybe the Particle Sun episodes and our episodes. Maybe you can prove that you're a survivor, ain't gonna <laughs> get ya, I'm a survivor, keep on surviving. What better way to start an episode than watching Martin's doldrum routine, daily routine play out? I, I was there for, you know, Beyonce singing my anthem. It's all right. It's all good. Now, is that Beyonce or is Survivor going back to like the end of Destiny's Child? That is Destiny's Child, but I believe that's her singing it. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, she was always singing it. But yeah, I had a look because I, I was like, I think that's Destiny's Child. So I actually looked it up because, yes. yeah. Yeah, she, it's DC. Yeah, yeah sure. she's, uh, I didn't realize you were on first name initial basis with them. <laughs> But yeah, no, it was a great opening. I mean, this is two weeks in a row. Last week we had, uh, you know, Wham and Malcolm. This week we yeah. have Destiny's Child and Martin. I mean, the the show's uh, music department's really hitting it out of the park. I think. But hopefully, we're we... not going to say they're killing it. We're not going to say they're killing it. No, right? no. no. <laughs> I think I think I think we have to respect Malcolm enough not to say that. So yeah, it's not a compliment. <laughs> You know, I, before we, I mean, it's not a major plot point, but I got to give Martin props that he flosses because dental hygiene is important, even when you're in a asylum for the you know criminally insane. For for life. Well, for life until or and uh, for or life until, and or until you make your way out of there. Right. Exactly. So, you know, which column take, A or column B? But which, either way, he is taking good care of his dental health. Which is a wonderful segue to tonight's murder. <laughs> Oh, Jer Bear. Oh. oh. Let's pour one out for Jer Bear. <laughs> pour one out for old Jer Bear. What a roller coaster this guy has. I mean, he starts the episode by telling us he's getting freed, he's leaving, he's cured. Beer and a lobster tomorrow. He's got. He's going to be feasting on crustaceans of the sea. He's got and, plans. And then he's dead minutes later. Dead. dead. Moments later. Just mm. pour one out. Pour one out. For Jer Bear. For the love of a good woman and lobster. Am I right, people? Mm. I mean, that's what life is all about. A woman to to steam you a lobster and not have you killed because she's mad that you're abandoning her. Explosive rage. Let's let's stay away from the woman with explosive rage. That's more like Ronda Rousey. Hey. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember Rhonda's last name in the show, but it was not Rousey. But that would have been what a, we got what a cameo. Oh, they said it would think it was uh... it was Rhonda and Mink. So what would you say if the crime this week is death of Jer Bear via being pushed off the roof and the motive is abandonment anxiety? What would the lo- what would the weapons be? What's the murder weapon tally look like for this week, you think? Death by explosive rage? I'm going with death by lobster and feminine wiles. Oh. Okay. You know, I, I think if not for the enticement mm-hmm. of Ward Z and Rhonda's womanly ways, I don't think Jer Bear ends up, you know, as as a basketball court uh, splatter. Yeah. I mean, Idris is going to need that pizza peel from, you know, last season to Ooh! scrape up. Listen, the second time I watched this episode, and I was doing my notes for it. I had my head down during that scene. I knew it was coming. So I was taking notes. I was filling in something. Uh, I was laughing to myself about Mr. David's comment that Mal- that Martin's problems uh, but with basketball are the like least of his problems. <laughs> 
and the squishy noise oh. that Jer Bear makes the when he hits the concrete. Yeah. It's Ooh. the grossest of sounds. Yeah. It, it, it was not good, people. The Foley artists on this episode definitely earned their money. That was some... Because, again, I listened to it with headphones on. So, you know, when we had the exorcism episode a couple ones back and Norman's screen, you know, Power of Christ compels you. I jumped because I had headphones up loud so I could hear everything. And, yeah, I heard the squelch, like, live in stereo in my ears. Blech. Who knew that Claremont had a Ward Z, had a whole woman's ward, and it shares it with the library, and that it's kind of nice. Smells like lavender? Lemon verbena. Oh, yes, love. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Entree. The sorry, Andre. Andre in with the... The, the murderous guard. Another one who succumbed to feminine wiles. Yeah, Rhonda must be having something yeah. good. I, I mean, get, oh, yeah. go get yourself some of whatever Rhonda's giving out. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it must be. It must be some. As, as, as long as you don't get on her explosive rage side, I mean, Rhonda right, must yeah. be doing something right. So stay on the lobster side, not on the, you know, the ward Z, though, the woman's ward. I mean, it's a little bit of Chekhov's gun. I feel like that's not something we hear about after a full season unless we're going to see more of it. So I'm putting a, I'm putting a bold prediction down that this is not the last time that we hear about the ladies of Claremont worst selling calendar in the uh the the, the, the thematic <laughs> calendar uh section that populates in like the holiday season every year yeah i think i might pass that one claremont you know claremont ladies ward z i'm gonna pass that one for 2021 it's already been a dumpster fire so let's pass that i mean in some ways that makes it almost seem like the perfect calendar to come out you know the 20 the retrospective 2020 calendar would f- feature the women of ward z oh yeah so, for sure yeah so I, i'm putting a bold prediction on that's not the last time that we see uh we see the fourth floor now that it's been introduced so, i mean they built sets for it i mean there were there were some new sets built for it so i feel like we're gonna have to see it again yeah definitely Still no JT in this episode, which is sad. Yeah. But, you know, I guess he's got a new baby, so, you know, we can't really hope for too much right now. You know what? And his episodes, I mean, his first two episodes were so much. Not only the ending with him being harassed by the police and then the Speak of the Devil uh, episode where where backup doesn't come. I mean, those were really traumatic episodes, the escalation of his storyline. So I feel like it's almost a breather, almost like lulling us into a false sense of security Mm -hmm. to not have him here for these two episodes. I mean, I'm sure the real reason is probably scheduling or something like that but um yeah i i feel like we're getting lulled into a false sense of security about him and you know just enough time to forget how traumatic his storyline is going and then they're going to come and slap us in the face with it you know uh, the joy of having a baby is also going to take a back seat to we're not done with his storyline i guess is my point no definitely not i agree with that 100 percent which honestly two episodes in a row without him makes me have more anxiety mm-hmm. about for when he returns that was like my first note. As soon as this, the episode ended, I was like, wait, wait, we got no JT? Oh, this isn't going to be good. But we did get the return of Ainsley in this episode. Yeah, but not not in a good way. Not in a good way, but in a big way, in a, yeah. in a way that I feel like we had kind of predicted since the start of the season, since really probably since the end of season one last year, we've been waiting for the thing that we saw tonight. You know, we haven't had a, a ton of substantive Ainsley this season. I think we need to give proper due credit to Halston Sage really knocking it out of the park. That whole first scene with Malcolm on the couch where he's relating his conversation with Jessica and she's kind of bartering about going and seeing uh, their father and he's against it. When she said, when he, she makes the deal to get out of the case <laughs> in exchange, she gives this orgasm, near orgasmic yes, yes that 
is so pitch perfect for the character. I mean, Halston just knocks it out of the park. It's just like a little line like that just makes you understand why she can she can hang with the blockbuster cast that makes up this show. Like she fits exactly where she fits exactly in the show. She fits exactly in this stellar Whitley family. It, it was it was truly kind of remarkable with just a little bit of a yes. So. I just I noted that is just such a perfect moment and a perfect reaction that it was just it yeah hit it out of the park is a really good way to describe it and then she's like Malcolm Chug he's chugging Alka Seltzer <laughs> like he's already had a day <laughs> and now he's got to go to Claremont yeah but I like that she doesn't like chastise him like she doesn't say put that down like she understands he has to have his antacid uh, which funny because Martin then later on has a, a, a line about I think I need an antacid yeah it must be like a Whitley a male Whitley trait that they have uh, in, you know Ajita or something so Ajita for you non-New Yorkers or non-metro uh, metro New York area people. Ajita is a slang term for uh, heartburn. So I, I thought it was Italian for heartburn. I think it was slang. I thought it was like actually like Italian. Well, I, I, I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's a perfect translation, but I mean, I, I grew up saying Ajita. It's a word in my vernacular, but I've heard other people, non-Italians say it. I, um, I said it. I grew up saying it. And you're not Italian. So there I'm you go. So Italian. it's a, it's a New Yorkism is what I'm calling it. You'll hear me say Ajita from time to time. Uh, it just means heartburn. That's all it is. It's Do not... I need to create a glossary as well as a Spotify playlist? No, 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 no. I'm just saying it here. It's, it's one of my, it's one of my few uh, real New Yorkisms, but uh, anyway. Yeah. So I, I just like, it's like a nice little Whitley treat that uh, they're all supportive of their uh, the digestive system issues. But let's get into the episode. Malcolm has a fantastic over-the-top, you need me on that wall, you want me on that wall, you can't handle that truth level outburst during group therapy. I mean, the, you know, standing up, finger in Martin's face, yelling about how he ruined his life and he, you know, wants me to be just like him, make me a monster. Is he being real there? Is that is that elaborate stage acting? What if you had to put a percentage on that? How much of that was authentic, cathartic shouting versus stage acting to try and get the people gathered to speak? Ninety-five-five. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to put a percentage. On. I. It was real. I mean, it was a real outburst, but he also knew that he needed to turn the group on Martin in order to gain their trust to get them talking, which his outburst did. So, but he did it in such a way that it was the truth. I'm going to go with like 90-10. I mean, obviously we knew he had a plan. I mean, the last thing, when Gil calls, Gil has an interesting role in this episode of just calling people kind of on their bullshit and, and speaking truth to power. And and it's great when Martin says, oh, but the group loves me. They respect me. And he's like, they hate you. And he's like, yes, they absolutely hate me. When So Malcolm realizes that he can use the dislike of Martin in the group to kind of get lip, loose lips going. I think that's the genesis of that plan. And Martin, if you Martin is in on it to a certain extent because his defense in that scene is like, oh, my boy, you've got it all wrong. Almost like he's like reading sides in like the book, you know, kind of like in front of him kind of thing. <laughs> like really bad line reading. And so there's a there is a stagecraft here, but he's drawing on real pain and real thoughts. I think 90 is a minimum of how truthful 90 percent is a minimum probably of how truthful uh, all that was and, and all he was feeling. And listen, therapy is a place where you can come clean with your feelings. It is supposed to be a safe space where you can you can let the rage out 
and not be judged for it. So, And keep in mind, Malcolm has not been going to therapy all along because we found out that he's not been going. And that's because he would be in a pile of trouble with what he would have to tell his therapist as to sort of the the rage that he's feeling and the the triggers for his um his hand tremors this was a moment for him to come to terms with some of the things that he's been dealing with too in a in a safe space even though it is with a bunch of committed psychopaths sociopaths um yeah, so he just he had his outburst there in a way that was you, you mentioned it like you need me on that wall, you want me on that wall. It had such an like a few good men feel to it to me. So I was like, You're goddamn right I did. And that's that's where I was I was feeling the uh the the tension building there. So it was a good release and it was a it was really just well written. And you need a Tom Payne level actor to pull that off though too, because it's a fine line that you're walking because there is some stagecraft. It is being staged for the theater of Bert Hector, Friar Pete and Dr. Marsh. It's being staged for their benefit, but all good actors in real life, he's drawing on his real pain and his real trauma to bring life to the performance. The fact that it's in therapy session, I think, is just wonderful irony that it is therapeutic in getting to scream it out loud because it's not something he actually gets to do very much. He yeah. he has to keep himself really in check with Martin. Well, everywhere, really. He's got to keep him. He's got to keep it together in ways that he shouldn't be for what he's dealt with. Except for with Adresa. He can well, be himself with Adresa. Can, yeah. Well, Adresa is just like calling on all of our better natures. He could be himself when he's a dresser. He could be himself when he's also chained to his bed with his night garden. So, yeah. and sunshine. Sunshine doesn't judge Malcolm. No, I no. want the I want a sunshine spinoff, a little parakeet spinoff. It's just <laughs> just you know like a Netflix fifteen minute an episode. It's just us watching sunshine sing whistling beautiful bird tunes. And I want the daily affirmation with that, like on the bottom of the screen. Daily affirmation with sunshine. Just said in like a really like deep like conscious tone, like you're entitled to happiness you have to love yourself if you expect anyone else to love you you know something like that i think that'd be very peaceful maybe a little babbling brook sound mike yeah are you a bird like for like voiceovers and shit like yeah that's, that was impressive that's my side gig that's my side gig that's impressive lawyer podcaster bird call sounder well, and, and it works, and it works, and it gets loose lips uh, going. Unfortunately, also leads it also <laughs> leads to uh, Doctor Marsh getting punched in the face by Bert. So, oh, I was so happy that we got some defined names out of this group. We got Hector, who we met before. Uh, he was Casanova last episode, right? And we met Bert, but Bert gets a name too. And and dang, Bert comes <laughs> Bert comes out of left field. Poor Doctor Marsh, I felt bad. He was like a deer in headlights with Bert coming at him. Guys, listen to the interview with you do with Michael Potts. He talks about this scene specifically. Without giving too much away, someone on set had a little fit of the giggles and took many, 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 many takes to actually get this scene done correctly. So definitely go listen to Michael Potts. We asked him what his favorite memory on set and it was filming this scene was what he picked. So definitely go <laughs> take a listen. It's it's a pretty great story. It was It was tremendous. But were you surprised, though, that the way that this scene played out that Malcolm ganged up with Martin to confront Dr. Marsh in the group. I was, it was very un Malcolm like because they went in there. We thought to get Hector or fire Pete or Bert to 
say something incriminating because those were the suspects going in there. Uh-huh. It seems to me that Dr. Marsh being the author- an authority figure, it almost seems dangerous and, in fact, turned dangerous to put Marsh on the spot that way. So I think it actually it seemed a, it seemed very Martin-like. It seemed a little too reckless even for Malcolm. It seemed reckless in a way Malcolm typically isn't putting Dr. Marsh in that position. When he says, I kind of want to see your card... And which kind of forces his Marsh's hand that he has to show it. Yeah, that actually didn't sit well with me. I didn't like that. I, I am normally a hundred percent behind all of Malcolm's decisions, even when they're crazy. I didn't like that. I didn't like that. How about you? I didn't like it either. It it didn't feel authentic for how Malcolm goes about his cases. Usually he's a step ahead. I don't know. I've talked about it a couple of times and, and I'm noticing it as a pattern. Is is he sliding a little bit in his ability to read the room, read profiles, um, deliver profiles. This is like number three where we've had like a little faux pas from him. I mean, it's Martin who's the one who brings it up and says, you know, it's not uncommon for therapists to have an, you know, abandonment, anxiety, separation. Yeah, when their patient is going to leave kind of thing. And then Malcolm goes along with that. Yeah, the whole thing I didn't like. I mean, it moved the story forward and it was great to see, you know, Bert kind of get up and who doesn't like a night. I mean, it's the second week in a row that we've had a, a, a group setting in Claremont, you know, where people have had to get pushed up against bars and have a lockdown situation um and who doesn't want chaos inside claremont i'm all about uh, a season at claremont yeah it it, it it rang a little false for me for malcolm to do it that way i want to skip to the end of the episode because i think the rest of the good malcolm stuff really comes when we're talking about it from martin's point of view at least for me anyway but at the end of the episode jessica calls him in a in a really well edited a really well done and executed scene she calls him on the fact that they're lying about endicott him and his sister are lying about endicott she found the bloody book he missed the spot he says that they have to keep it quiet that ainsley doesn't remember and that if she was to find out he says that we could lose her now i think that's really wide open to interpretation i'm curious what your take on that is in what way do you think he fears they can lose Ainsley. That line, it just like you said, like it's just it's so open ended. It it just has me like scratching my head. Like, does he see something in her from his profiler skill set that she's got Martin Whitley like traits? And you know, you and I have teased this this season that you know she's going to be the deadline. You know, that's going to be her serial killer name. I'm wondering if he sees something in her that she was able to snap. And we've talked about the skill with which she slit Nicholas Endicott's throat, you know, holding his hair, immobilizing him. Like she had some innate skills. So I'm wondering if he doesn't believe that she's some sort of serial killer in the making. I don't want to say psychopath in the making because I don't see that from her yet i've seen tendencies of it especially when um she was doing the surgeon interview in season one and her boyfriend cameraman got stabbed and she want and she started filming the the surgery as as good journalism and that was kind of a callous take on it and you know if you're watching a show about a serial killer your hackles kind of go up when you see something like that because it is just so outside of the norm of how somebody would react so i'm wondering if he doesn't see something from his profile skills because he has really turned this blind eye when it comes to his family with his his skill set of being a profiler so maybe this was him opening up that door a little bit 
What do you think? I, I think the obvious interpretation is that her finding out what she did would cause a kind of permanent mental break in her and lose her in a way where like she'll be damaged. My take, I think, is the same as yours, is the worry is that she is going to, not to make everything about Star Wars, but that she's on a path to the dark side. That because she didn't grow up fearing the surgeon the same way Malcolm did, she doesn't have a repulsion against him, and so would be more susceptible to follow in his footsteps like meaning like she doesn't she wouldn't have the the earned immunity to reject the surgeon's lifestyle because she didn't live through it the same way malcolm did and so hasn't had to fight against the tendencies the same way malcolm does you know malcolm is every morning malcolm looks in a mirror malcolm is looking at mr hyde he's looking at the darkness and he's pushing it away he's making that conscious choice Ainsley's never really had to do that, and now there's this worry that it's being awoken in her, and that she won't have the ability, you know, she won't have the white blood cells to fight off that kind of infection, as it were. And I think that's his concern. When he said, when we might lose her, I think what he merely means is we might, we might be creating a new surgeon in her. Right, the next monster. I gotta tell you, and the end scene with Ainsley, and I think that's kind of a, it's actually a nice uh, place to kind of spring to, Let's talk about Ainsley because, uh, and specifically that final scene where she's reading his journal. It's, it's so it's a perfect segue to talking about Ainsley and specifically the end scene with her because it's a little troubling while we're having the dinner upstairs with Jessica and Malcolm down in the surgeon's office. We see Ainsley starting to read through Martin's journal, uh, what I lovingly called in my notes here, a love letter to the blood of your first victim, the uh, the the analogy he makes to seeing the blood is like landing in Oz where everything is in color for the first time. I mean, really poetic way to talk about a really fucking dark subject. I don't know what's more troubling that Ainsley is so bent on wanting to speak to her father, this idea that he can tell her the things that she needs to know or that she's sitting there reading his journal out of context, just reading his words and looking so enraptured by it. I'm going to say the fact that she's sitting at night reading his journal about the exhilaration of seeing a victim's blood for the first time is not going to end in a way that she's anticipating. Like I, she wants to remember, and I don't know why she wants to remember. She's looking at it as like some elusive thing and she thinks that she'll be better for knowing it. But I think it's far more troubling that she's reading the unfiltered thoughts of her father. I mean, when you're writing your journal, you're writing whatever, you know, you're writing down your thoughts. It's not for anybody else's consumption, right? So you're going to be as honest as possible. If he was writing it for posterity, that's something different Then you know, that lends itself to the poetic license that I feel that it had. But the fact that she's devouring this and things are starting to trickle back, I'm just afraid when the floodgate opens and she does remember and she's had now the exposure to some of the, maybe the methodologies or some of the the, the thrill after the fact, the memento seeking that serial killers tend to engage in. They, they, keep, they keep different types of souvenirs or they keep trophies uh, from their victims. I'm just afraid for her, you know, what this is going to do. And then the fact that she ends up having a bad dream 
almost immediately after reading this is just it's she's going down a dark path and she's got nobody there to really help her if she's there alone with her thoughts and a journal that was written by a 23 person serial killer i got i think you have to wonder if it was really a bad dream she had at the end or if it was more that she had a memory uh, at the end of the episode i mean i would probably if i was going to describe it to someone else so i can crawl into their bed and snuggle i'd probably describe it as a bad dream too but i feel like after after being confronted with a replacement rug and having the flashes that she has in this episode the idea that the door is open this is something that we've been talking about all season it wasn't a it wasn't a matter of if it was just a matter of when she would start to remember and go on her quote-unquote girl in the box like journey i think we saw the start of that tonight you know is she gonna remember it now now that now we're in episode four and she's remembered a little bit of it is it gonna be drips and drabs or you think she's gonna get a flood of memories coming back to her now i think it's gonna be a, a slam like it's all gonna come flooding back it's gonna be like the when like the levee breaks kind of thing um <laughs> Led Zeppelin, last track of album four. Guys, go check it out. It's, yes, it's excellent when the levy breaks. Anyway, I agree with you. I'm inclined to think that it's going to come in drips and drabs. I think I think the show did and did well the, the slow reveal of the girl in the box storyline last year. I feel that the Ainsley counterpart to that storyline is going to come in tidal waves. But I think because the more interesting question for Ainsley is going to be, you know, she's going to come to a fork in the road and what path is she going to choose? Is she going to, is she going to follow Malcolm down resisting those dark urges or is she going to lean into it and become my dear girl, you know, become the, become Martin's protege as it were, which is both. I mean, I actually think that's the more interesting storyline. I think that's the one that probably gets my pulse racing a little bit more. I would love to see that because that will turn into a cat and mouse game of Malcolm having to not only play a mastermind game of chess against his father, but against his sister, who is no slouch. I mean, uh, all the Whitleys, including Jessica, are really with it and they're hip. Uh, they're hip to the jive. They they are smart. They have good instincts. But I think Ainsley, with a little tutelage from the surgeon, could be a really formidable opponent for Malcolm. And she may not need all of the tutelage directly from him, especially if she's got access to these journals. And 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 why are they just laying around 22 years later? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the office, now that it's been unearthed as it was in season one, that is being kind of preserved for posterity. And not a surprise that Martin kept such well-annotated notes, but those were some, like, medical journal-level drawings that we saw in his journal. So it's going to be interesting if that becomes a guidebook to her. While Malcolm is cock-blocking her access to Martin, <laughs> it's almost more dangerous to learn from a book, right? Because yeah. it's out of context. It's, it's Exactly. And then you can just let your imagination run wild with it. It's like reading a Stephen King book late at night, right before you go to bed. Like it's completely going to mess with your subconscious. So Martin's quips are just like giving me so much life. He says, you know, let's do the good cop, bad cop, mm, predatory psychopath. It's more interesting to me that he's needling Gil about how he has inserted himself into Martin's family. And he's definitely doing a very 
I don't want to be disparaging and say it's it's a very like you know territorial. Let's let's do that. It's, it's very territorial stint that he's taking here. Is he like manipulating people here, or is he just playing with his dinner? Like, is he angry at Gil for encroaching on his family, or is he just you know sort of playing with him just to annoy him? I think it really does bother him. I think Gil being so close to Jessica and presumably I don't think I don't think that we've seen that he knows that Gil and Jessica are not a thing at this point. As far as Martin knows, Gil and Jessica may still be an item, right? Because he was he caught wind of their increasing time together last season without being told otherwise by Malcolm or Jessica or Ainsley or whoever. You know, there's no reason for him to not think that Gil and Jessica are still super super close, which I think maybe is what annoys Gil the most because he's needling him this way. I think he really is bothered by not only his time with Jessica, because I think he still loves Jessica in his own predatory psychopathic way. I think it's Gil's role as father figure to Malcolm that has always and continues to bother Martin the most. So I think he's needling him just because he can't help himself. It's not in his best interest to to not needle Gil here because he wants to work the case and only Gil's the only one who can let him do that. And the same way he can't help himself from needling Jessica that the apples don't fall that far from the tree. He got his kids scot-free. He had convinced her that they weren't involved in Endicott's murder. But he had to, Sheila, he had to add in, they are my children too. Because I guess he can't help himself. He had it in the bag. He had her convinced that she was bananas. And he brought in that apples don't fall far from the tree. And he knew it. He caught himself. He hung up the phone right away. And that was, you know, Ainsley coming in. But he knew it. He His face changed everything. He slipped up. I don't know that he slipped up. I see that's that's I think that's open to interpretation. And I think I disagree. I don't think he slipped up. I think he literally can't help himself when people imply that his kids, Malcolm especially, aren't like him. You're just like me, my boy. I think mm-hmm. the idea that it's so crazy to Jessica, she 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 buys into his uh, his spin on it that it's preposterous that Malcolm would have been involved with Endicott's death, chopping up the body and shipping it to Estonia. She takes to it so well, thereby intimating that, of course, my kids aren't anything like you, you murderous psychopath, that right. he can't help himself. He has to be like, no, 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 actually, you know, they are my kids too, and apples don't fall that far from the tree he well that's that narcissism that he's got yeah and it's it's a compulsion it's why he probably keeps such detailed journals you know it's not for his own consumption it's he wants people to know what he did and in minutiae and in detail well that's what surgeons do i mean like literal surgeons they after an operation they do dictation and they basically recite from memory all the things that they did in the operation, like what the tissue looked like and, and the, the pallor of the tissue. Oh, it's just, it's disgusting to hear what they have to like literally say. And, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're trained to be that level of detail. It's just the fact that he put the, the murdery spin on it is, um, you know, the most disconcerting part. Yeah. So I think in some that scene is he's going to bat for his kids in, in particular, he's going to bat for Malcolm. He's providing them cover. But when Jessica scoffs at the idea is also being ridiculous, which is what he just said. He's the one who says it's ridiculous. You should be ashamed of yourself for even thinking of that. She takes to it so easily. He has to. He literally cannot control himself the same way he can't help but needling Gil and being like, well, you know, 
you, you did fuck my wife or trying to, and you did try and play a father to my son. And, you know, the kids are murderous psychopaths just like me. Nah, 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 I gotta go, you know, and then hangs up the phone. He, I, he just can't. He just can't. Coming off of this conversation about the manipulation versus just playing with his dinner. I don't know about you, but I did a huge jump back when Martin went off on Malcolm for ruining his family, ruining his life. It just how sinister he sounded. And then he was just able to switch back into this little like sing song voice. But that's not me. Like, what did that scene do for you? You know, it's interesting because I think this is one of the only times we've ever seen Martin really lose his cool like this and and directed it at Malcolm. You know, this is the first time dad has ever turned into a disciplinarian to his son. He usually takes all of Malcolm's guff. He takes all of Malcolm's scorn. He takes all of Malcolm's blame. You know, in the group therapy session, when Malcolm barges in here and accuses him of murdering Jer Baird based on Rhonda's testimony, because uh, she figure, you know, she fingers him for having done it or having caused someone to do it. He takes all of that usually, but something about this in this particular instance makes him snap so it's interesting it's really a question of is he actually snapping is he really losing his cool here and then gaining it back and where he switches into the sing-song voice of and that's not me and I wouldn't also kill Jerbear because you're very good at what you do, Malcolm. You know, he pats him on the head, essentially. You're very good at what you do, and you would solve that case. You know, so the question, I, I, you can't know. He's so good. He's so good at his manipulation. He's so good at being a psychopath, a kind of emotionalist psychopath. You, it's hard to tell when he's turning it on for effect or if he's really feeling it. Or is it the same what Malcolm was in group therapy? Was it 90% really cathartic? This is how he actually feels inside. This is the rage that Martin keeps down inside and never lets see the light of day because he wouldn't be able to stop the bloodlust. And 10% you know, stage acting because he wants to put Malcolm in his place. You know, he wants to alpha his son a little bit. Or was it all just theater? He truly doesn't feel one way or another, and he can keep it all in check. But he was doing it purely to to cuck Malcolm, essentially, and, you know, put him in his place. Because that's the effect of it. I mean, the effect is, oh, yeah, you're going to come at me. You're going to come at me. You're going to come at me. Well, how about I tell you all the reasons that you have fucked my life and your mother and destroyed our family. And And your sister. Yeah, and you ruined her, right? That's how he ends. And he's throwing some real New York accent. I mean, he loses. Oh my, your mother, your mother, your family, yeah, you, you ruined her too. I mean, he's uh, he's uh, there's not a fucking consonant at the end of a word to be found for days. And you know, uh, my, my Michael Sheen is Welsh. You know, yeah. this is not a natural a- accent for him, but he was killing it. I was like, oh my god, I was like back in Queens again. I I sat up and took notice because it was. I feel like just to kind of bookend what you said that this was a rebuke to Malcolm that I took your lip in front of my peers. Granted, it was a ploy to get the information that we needed, but at the same time, there was a lot of truth ringing out, and this was his opportunity to regain some face. 
it was too raw and too real on both sides for it not to have a resonant truth. And I think there's a little bit of truth in his outburst, because, and I'm going to point to the accent thing, because people who spend time losing their accent, mm. people who spend time developing the mid-Atlantic dialect and, and all of that, and red leather, yellow leather, I speak very properly, I say water, I, you know, I, I don't have a trace of my upbringing. Those people who, like, work hard to abandon their accents always comes out when they get excited, Whenever, mm. whenever they lose a control over themselves, accents naturally come out. While we've heard Martin use his New York accent before, it was never as pronounced as it is in this scene. It's flying hard in this scene. And that's just another nice, subtle indication that he is really feeling what he's screaming here. The fact that he pulls it back so quickly and says, but that's not me, which is the audio that we uh, played at the beginning of this episode. And then he goes on to say, and I would never do it because you tell the case, you know, all that is him reeling it back and keeping composure but i really think there is a big part of him that wanted to get this off his chest this idea because he's he's intimated before that finding the killer didn't work out so great for me and you know kind of putting malcolm on the spot again for the purposes of getting the other people in therapy on malcolm's side but it bothers martin that malcolm called the cops he wanted to share this thing with malcolm and Malcolm responded by calling the police on him, which is a segue to something that we kind of talked about last week. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about Martin and Malcolm. Martin has always spent a lot of time involved in Malcolm's interests because he sees them as the same and that he only seems to pay attention to Ainsley when Ainsley's showing bloodlust or murderous, <laughs> murderous intent. And that's when he pays attention to her because then she's exhibiting things that are of interest to Martin. Malcolm says that exactly to Martin tonight. And now when we talked about that last week, we hadn't seen this episode. So I think that's just us having maybe a good read, patting us on the back a little bit. This is where we'll toot our own horn. Um, uh, yeah, I think this is just, I think it's just a good read on Martin's character, but I'm glad to hear Malcolm call him out about it too. I don't know if you picked that up in this episode. Yeah, definitely. It was just, it was much more pronounced that you're only here for the interest when it suits you. The idea that you wanted to make me a monster like you were. The true or false, Mike? I got a, I got a true or false question for you here. I love that. Were you just like a teensy little bit worried that Martin was going to hurt Danny and or left Malcolm with Rhonda and uh, skedaddled over there to the exit? There was a lot going on here with Martin, and we know from last week's episode, really going back to the end of the two weeks ago, Martin has a plan, and his plan involves him getting out of Claremont. He was presented with all of those options in this basement scene, which, by the way, total aside, when he comes off and says, yeah, this is a good place for murder. Really funny. I mean, his quips, someone should make a, a, a day, a calendar, a day of his quips because they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, yeah, I, I mean, it all kind of aligns. There's an exit sign. His son is being, you know, ass whooped by Rhonda and her taser. He's got a clear passageway. He's got access to the key card. He finds a, a sweat leather jacket oh he's got like a motorcycle jacket on he is jetting the face he is making standing over danny's shoulder as it goes to that break it was the same damn face he made when he was about to cure jerbear <laughs> right which i maintain he was going to kill jerbear not cure him i think that was just an un unintended consequence 
Uh, I gotta tell you, it made me a little, it made me a little worried because I think this is a show that is sophisticated enough. And I think it's a show that trusts itself enough to make big moves. Kill Danny? No. But have Martin in, in order to further his ends hurt Danny? Yeah, maybe. The the one thing that was telling me that's not how it's going to play out is because I really do think he's devoted to Malcolm and Malcolm's safety. But a little bit of me, a little concerned that he was going to either hurt Danny or or jet out the exit and let Malcolm, uh, you know, he he sees Danny's there. So maybe he thinks Danny can protect Malcolm and I can get out of here. I didn't think he was going to kill her. There was no way that was going to happen. But there was a part of me that thought like he could definitely like hit her with something because there was just weapons galore down there. Uh, just to take her out. Or I didn't even think that, you know, he thought that Danny would just have Malcolm's back and he could just make his little exit. But there was definitely this this moment in me. I was just like, Martin, don't do just do the right thing. Do the right thing. And he let his opportunity go, I feel, in order to save his son. So I'm glad that he didn't. Although he did look fierce in that motorcycle jacket. I mean, he said it. He When you know, you know. And he knew that he was making it work. So, I, I mean, he gives up the key card reluctantly to Malcolm. There was a little bit of me. I got to tell you, there was a little bit of me uh, that thought Malcolm may let him keep it. I don't know why. There, it flashed in my head. I was like, I wonder if Malcolm's going to let him keep the card which is insane. Malcolm wouldn't do that. But Malcolm has had like this, this is like twice in a row where Malcolm, two weeks in a row where Malcolm has had to be kind of conciliatory to his father. You know, he came and actually apologized last week. And this week he kind of falsely accused really based on another inmate at Claremont's testimony that his father did that. And he was so willing to believe it, even though he was out playing basketball, shooting some hoops outside by the school um, <laughs> when Jerry was up to no good. Um, and and. So- so, and so, yeah. So, I mean, this is twice in a week, twice in a row now where he kind of really went hard at Martin and was proven wrong to, to your point that he's off, that he is actually off. You know, he's not working on all cylinders because he's so distracted by Ainsley. He's so distracted by his own trauma and reliving those nightmares. You know, Malcolm isn't seeing the world great and he's definitely not seeing his father perfectly well um he lets himself i mean he sees martin early in the episode uh eyeing the key card and calls him on it says I, you know yes. uh, you know martin has that whole line about you know a lion always wonders about you know whatever the, the uh, lion the and savannah, yeah yeah the, the dreams about the savannah kind of thing but he lets martin walk him right away from that by getting easily distracted about well what's worrying about you malcolm normally wouldn't be so distracted or or uh, allow himself to be taken off of why are you interested in this key card so easily but malcolm is not working at 100 i think i think that's a good call that you've been saying really since the beginning of the season and we're seeing more and more particularly in the last two weeks which is why i think eventually when ainsley starts doing her deadline stuff that you talked about because I, I just feel that that's coming malcolm is not going to be like in top condition to adequately run the profile no because he's not going to want to admit it to himself if I have any understanding of the character, Malcolm is going to blame himself for allowing his sister to fall that far. So if she does turn down the path of the surgeon and becomes the deadline, you know, the deadline killer, um, which I really, really like that name. And I hope they go with that. I mean, it's not as good as Friar Flayings, but I hope I hope it makes a way in there. 
we mentioned Danny, well, one of many countless times, but another time that she's had to come to Malcolm's aid and solve him. And we have the uh, the justice killings where she comes in the apartment as Malcolm is uh, standing on top of the killer with his scimitar. So, you know, Danny again coming to Malcolm's rescue at just the nick of time. But she didn't really have her much of a storyline again in this episode. I mean, we got to see her, but she really just got to play sidekick. She got to play sidekick to Malcolm and she got to, you know, have some great interaction with Martin about don't touch me again or I'll shoot you, you know, and he duly noted. And I like that. And I love her chemistry when they're playing, you know, rapid profiling of the female attendants. But man, I want some I want some real meaty Danny storyline. Well, I have a feeling between last episode and this episode, last episode being the lore of Malcolm's you know, origin story for his hand tremors, and this being the the widening of the girl in the box storyline for this season, right? The Ainsley Ainsley in the journal or whatever it's gonna be. Now we're gonna now we've got some of these big bombs got that have gone off. Now we can get back into the immersion of the relationship between these characters. Like I feel like JT's gonna come back, that we're gonna get a deepening of the friendship, the stand between um between Malcolm and Danny. So it, the door is open for that to come back now. And whatever's going on with, with Gilsica, is that what we called them last time? Gilsica, yes. Gilsica, okay. Well, uh, so here, here's my, I'm going to throw down another bold prediction. Uh, this is more wishful thinking on my part. Episode five last season, episode five of season one was The Trip, which was the great Malcolm does drugs episode, but it was really the Danny episode. It was where we really got to find out the Danny lore and about a little, a little peek into her past. And next week being episode five, I'm hoping history repeats itself and that we get a, a Danny episode or at least some Danny storyline because I think she is a fascinating character. I think there's a lot about her that meshes well with Malcolm and his trauma. Um, and I think that's why they have such good chemistry, because I think they both come from broken places. And so they're good for each other. So here's hoping, fingers crossed, that episode five, which, again, we have not seen. Hey, listeners, can I take you behind behind the scenes a little bit? TV shows during COVID times have really, uh, really tough production schedules. And even though Prodigal Son was in production for season two for a long time, post-production is a whole other aspect where they have to fix the dialogue. They have to do ADR, which is automatic dialogue replacement. And with the overdubbing for scenes that don't come out, they have to do color correction. There's a whole bunch of things that happen post-production on top of visual effects, visual effects, final music, credits, all this stuff has to happen in post-production. And so when we get screeners, depending on how much lead time a show has had, usually affects of how far in advance you get the screener for an episode. Typically, last year, we had, I think we, I think I had screeners for Prodigal Son. I think I had like 10 episodes ahead at all times last year. You're listening to this episode on February 2nd. Mm-hmm. We watched this screener. This is some real behind-the-scenes people. We watched the screener on January 29th. This episode was finished January 28th. So, like, we got it. It was literally still hot. It was hot out the oven. It was fresh out the kitchen when we watched this episode. So screeners are hard to come by in advance. So anything we say about the future is really just us speculating. And it's really days ahead. <laughs> yeah, it literally days ahead. Like, yes, we, we interviewed Michael Potts on the 29th. Uh, we got this episode on the 29th, and it was it was just finished the 28th. So uh, there, yeah. there's a very little lead time going on with screeners in the screener world right now. So a little, a little peek behind the curtain on what we're dealing with here to bring you the Surgeon Files podcast. Yeah, so here's fingers crossed that Danny has a good episode next week. 
I want to circle back to Jessica because we didn't really get a good time talking about her. No. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised that she copped to Malcolm and Ainsley's lie so quickly after hearing both of them repeat parts of it in this episode? I wish you could see my face right now. I'm a mom. Moms have this ability to just see through the bullshit. I have a, I have a seven-year-old child, right? So he's not skilled yet in lying. Even when he's skilled in lying, I know that I'm going to be able to see it. I'm 42. My mom can tell when I'm not putting on the, or if I'm putting on a brave face and it's not the brave face, you know, that she's really seeing. So moms have this ability. And I'm not going to say that dads don't have the ability to, but we're talking about Jessica and the, the, the mockery that's been made of her, her meddling versus mothering. So the fact that she could see through Malcolm and Ainsley's lies is not surprising to me at all because Jessica, if nothing else, and you know, Jessica's gotten a bad rap. I mean, She's labeled an alcoholic, a social pariah, all these different things, but she's at her core, a good mom. She is. She has shielded these kids since 1998 from a lot of the horrors as much as she could of being a serial killer's child and being part of a serial killer's family. So the fact that she could see through it is not, it's not surprising to me at all. And she had some really good clues to pick up on, I feel. You know, who's going to remember the exact year and varietal of a wine that got spilled? It'd be like, it was red wine. I don't remember what it was. It was a 2007 Syrah. Yeah. And, you know, she was just like, huh, like they both said it. So, and then just reading Malcolm's face when she presented him with the one splatter of blood that she could find. He had nothing left. He had nothing left to to guard her, guard himself against her. Bad liars do uh, similar things across the board. One thing, and not, not that I think Malcolm and Ainsley are particularly bad liars, but I think the flaw in their plan was that they had too many details. I, I think I think ultimately that's what sank it, and I think that's what Jessica's seizing on when she when she specifically asks Ainsley, what was that bottle again? And she like she could have pulled out a recorder of Malcolm saying it the way she says the same exact vintage year and type of grape as Malcolm did. It sounds so rehearsed, it's so detailed. Guys, if you're going to lie, A, you have to have a little bit of truth in your lie, and B, you can't have too many details. Too many details makes people suspicious because people don't actually normally talk like that. When you relate stories to someone and you're telling the truth, you don't actually usually put that many details into the story you're recollecting because no one really gives a fuck. It's it's (laughs) only when you're lying and you're trying to make it sound uh, like waterproof, but you're trying to make it sound airtight. Be like, I have accounted for every single possible thing that you may have found down to the fact that Malcolm, you know, even says, of course you didn't find any evidence, you know, because we didn't do anything, but he's thinking you didn't find any evidence because we got rid of it all. Yeah. We cleaned it all up. Right. Right. The, 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 the too detailed lie is all, kind of part of that and i think that's what really jessica is copying on together with i don't think she goes through this without martin laying that little nugget without nesting that little earworm right before he hangs up the phone uh i think if they had just left it with her coming to the conclusion he walked her to that it's preposterous i think she probably lets it go I, I think it's I think it's the doubt she was already experiencing kind of reignited as he kind of, you know, dumped that information and, and hung up. Oh, he completely gaslit her. Yes, that's the phrase. That is the phrase all the cool kids are using. Gaslighting, gaslighting her. 
if you're wondering why the show keeps having Omar Madha direct these episodes, all you have to do is look at this scene. Look at the scene of Jessica being calm, cool, and collected, walking Malcolm to his lie as we're cross-cutting to her frantic, frenetic search, tearing apart the Milton family reading room, looking for evidence, and then presenting it on a goddamn silver platter, the book with a little speck of blood on it. That is a masterful edit that it takes it takes someone who really knows their craft and really knows the show to pull off. So big, big credit to Omar Madha and to the editors on the show, because this was maybe one of my favorite sequences in the series. She was going to give any forensic criminologist a complete run for their money with what she was able to uncover. That is the most minuscule of shreds of evidence. And she was able to find it in this massive room with a billion things in it. Just the way that it was spliced and cut and written and executed. And Bellamy Young just slammed this one out of the park. The way that she had, like, yeah, what you said, like, she had this calm, cool, collected exterior in talking to Malcolm. But inside, you know that that was really what she was feeling, that frenetic, frantic search. And that she knew that she was going to find something and she wasn't going to stop until she found it. 100% 100% on Bellamy Young. That's kind of what I was getting at uh, when I was complimenting Halston Sage. When you when your TV family is Michael Sheen and Bellamy Young as your parents, and then you have Tom Payne playing your brother, that's heavy hitters. That's like Grand Slam heavy hitters uh, that you're acting with. And that Halston Sage not only hangs with them, but like goes blow for blow with them so, so well is a really credit to her ability and people know her from the orville and people feel whichever way they feel about the orville i think she's undeniable in this role as ainsley and the fact that she can hang with the bellamy youngs uh, scene for scene is a real testament to her because bellamy this is this is like kind of emmy level stuff what she's doing here in the scene i think the barely keeping it together composure the break in her voice when she says no more lies you know she's she's pleading with her son to not keep things from her the way she had to live with her husband keeping things from her for so many years yeah everything about the scene really really worked really well i think it's the best scene in the episode i think it's one of the best sequences at least edited wise in in the series and what an awesome reveal that little speck of blood that she would find it like that's the kind of thing that it's almost it's almost a testament to how off his game malcolm is that he uh, let that book stay but a great credit to jessica that she was so determined to prove her instinct right that she found it that she was so dogged about it and found it presenting it on a silver platter was just uh that's that's jessica flair that was so. just no that was milton flair that was just old old money old school it was just it was brilliant well, guys, that takes us to the end of our discussion of episode four of the season, Take Your Father to Work Day. Um, so now stick around for our, our exclusive interview with Michael Potts, who plays Dr. Brandon Marsh in this episode and his, uh, at least for now anyway, two guest starring, two episode guest starring stint. This is episode two. Yeah, we had actually seen Dr. Marsh before, but this was the first time that we really got to see him in action. Anyway, stick around for our interview with Michael Potts coming up right now. And then afterwards, uh, we'll be back with Adrice's Corner wrap ups and we'll say goodbye. 
Joining us tonight now on The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast, is Dr. Brandon Marsh himself, the one, the only, Michael Potts. Michael, thank you so much for coming out. It's, you know, as a New Yorker, we are big Broadway fans here. We're big New York TV show fans here. And you have done it all. You have all those boxes. (laughs) So we're super psyched here to to talk to you about today's episode. Great, great. Excited to be here with you. We always like to kind of start the beginning and where it's always an interesting thing for people to hear how people get roles and you're mm-hmm. kind of the king of like guest star on major tv shows in any time coming into a guest starring role on an established show was probably weird talk to us a little bit about getting this role and then shooting it during covid times and how that affected kind of the experience yeah it's really weird because um it was actually the first show i shot under the new uh covid protocol i hadn't shot anything before then because of shutdown so that was very very strange and very weird getting all these emails from uh warner media and you know you had to check in every day and take your temperature every day make sure you were okay and they were constantly <laughs> setting up appointments right. <laughs> about testing you know your poor nose getting violated the- every day oh my goodness <laughs> i'd go to silver cup luckily i live around the corner from silver cup yay uh, unusual, uh, so I only had to walk. Yeah, I know. I only had to walk about two blocks nice, to get nice. to the studio, but you know, and I go there often. And so, one day I'd be on the first floor waiting for a test, then I have to go to the second floor, and they're two different rooms and they're two different clinics. Sometimes you'd have to go to the testing trailer. So that was all new, and then they kept us pretty well divided to make sure we had uh, the mandatory six feet and they had the zones. So that was all a bit disorienting for a little while in the very, very beginning. And it's very strange on a set, even when you're sitting with the rest of the cast, you're just so far away. You don't have that time to kind of talk and bond because you usually just be yelling at one another. So it's we're all in four corners of the room in our own little world prepping for the scene. That was my kind of thought. Um, well, concern was, you know, it's all said and done. You finish and you're, it, are, were you left with a little bit of feeling left like, I didn't really get to know any of those people, you know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It, it, it was. We were all in our four corners when we were shooting and, you know, we'd all be reading or on our individual cell phones. <laughs> but we never really spoke across to one another, uh, aside from the fact that it was also freezing because oh, yeah. uh, there, there was no heat on in the studio for whatever reason. I don't know. And then because of COVID protocol, they also had to put the fans on in oh, between Lord. takes. <laughs> so we were we were bundled up and freezing. And, and, and all on really... your phone. So like you're just like a bunch of like, I don't know, millennials or something. I know. Just it was not, really, really strange. We were, we're, I know we were. I mean, I did have one moment in in the show because uh, with Lou Diamond Phillips as Detective Arroyo, and he's carrying out Dr. Marsh. So we had that moment in the car. (laughs) So he and I got to chat a little bit (laughs) with each other in the police car. But other than that, put on the fake police car heat. Come on, come on. (laughs) Oh, whoa. It took a while to figure out how to turn it on. The first few times through, we sat there freezing as well. (laughs) We had to ask someone, can you turn the heat on in this car, please? Just, just for a little bit. Wow, they were really putting the screws to Dr. Marsh. I mean, like just be in the moment. Turns out the prop, the prop people on the show are method actors. As it turns out, they were keeping it. Oh my goodness, they were keeping it real, my keeping it real. Goodness. So you have a lot of acting credits in the procedural crime genre. 
<laughs> you know, from The Wire. I mean, like, let's 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 drop some bombs here, right? You've got The Wire. You have the Law and Order franchise, not just one, but several of the Law and Orders you have appeared on, and True Detective, just to name a few, right? Just a few, yeah. Yeah, you know, just like again, bomb dropping. So, is yeah. this a genre that appeals to you? I mean, and now obviously, Prodigal Son. If we're going to include that in this, you know, bomb droppers. Um, so, is this a genre that that appeals to you? I think I think it's the genre that I appeal. To. Too, I guess. <laughs> that is a that is a fair point because they're the ones who call. <laughs> so, do you think yeah. you have like a particularly like doctory or lawyerly vibe about you? I don't know. I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess. mean, you have this very I mean, you know soothing presence about you on screen, so there must be something to it. It must be. I don't know. I think to a certain extent, you know, in this business, people, different casting people, producers see you differently. And so I've been lucky in that sense because it's kept me working because different people see me differently and, and I can stay I can stay busy. But it is kind of interesting that I do end up on a lot of these major crime dramas and these procedurals, <laughs> either as even in movies and some low budget things. I'm somehow always the uh, psychiatrist <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> or the therapist or something. So, you know, it's possible it might be actually your agent who has a particular feeling for for you. Maybe I only send Michael for lawyer or or doctor roles. That's all he does. Well, I I think that I think it's well they have. I guess we become a little more selective as age. I'm aging the business. I think in the very beginning they just throw it throw everything at the wall. That's really funny. See what what sticks. Oh my god. Oh my god. Let's actually turn to your role here. You play Dr. Marsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've seen you before tonight's episode, but you didn't have, because we've seen Martin back in therapy since the season started, mm-hmm. but we didn't have really any lines from you. Tonight, though, was kind of, let's get to know the good doctor. Yeah. How do you prepare for the kind of role where you kind of have to come in, make a statement, you know, make a memory, uh, have this kind of really linchpin role in the episode and then kind of exit stage left, but and yet still kind of be memorable about it. Is that a particular talent to kind of hit a home run like that if for, you know, out of the box? <laughs> well, the easy answer is yes, if you want to come back. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be invited back, you need to leave an impression. Do you need to do the same kind of prep role, I guess? So do you do the same kind of prep work for like a, a guest starring role like this versus you were going to do for if it was going to be an ongoing series recurring regular? Absolutely, because you have less time. If you're a series regular, you have time to kind of slowly and incrementally build your arc based upon the episode and and the narrative uh, for that season, such as True Detective. But when you have a shortened arc, you're not the main focus. You know, when it's about the other leads, then you have to figure out your arc pretty quickly. But it's the same preparation. I read the episode script at least three times just to find out where I fit in that story and and to finish off what part of the story I'm supposed to be telling and try to take it moment by moment. And then, you know, also deciding as an actor when you're in playing the role, how much do you give away? How much can you hide? It's, It's always that thing of playing with the audience. You know, when do you pull back the curtain and let people see who he really is. You present one image. So it's so it's that kind of way of making yourself memorable. So you as you mentioned earlier, a warm kind of soothing presence. But underneath is a man with an agenda. Right, right. <laughs> you know, who has a particular objective in this and you get to see that later. So those are the kind of things that go on in my head. 
So I have a question that I guess about like Dr. Marsh and and how how we see him, how we perceive him, and how you play him. Mm-hmm. Which do you think is worse about Dr. Marsh that he exchanged his gold security key card for Jerry's testimonial that the therapy worked, or that mm. <laughs> or that Dr. Marsh knew that Rhonda was intimate with a security guard and I don't know did nothing about it. <laughs> This is not a good man, Michael. This... I think I've decided which side of the fence Dr. Marsh fell down on. Well, uh, the, well up, up until Jerry's death, it was no one was being harmed by <laughs> Oh, man. It was, it was innocent. Jerry was going to get out the next day. He just wanted to say goodbye. people it was harmless (laughs) he was under minimal security while he was there and this ongoing relationship that's not new i've been in other i've been in other prisons and other psych wards it happens (laughs) it happens as long as no one was getting hurt by it what what's the big deal oh good lord i i think i think claremont's got to stop hiring people from craigslist i think that's the problem Look, until Rhonda went off the deep end, you know, <laughs> nobody was being hurt. Fair enough, you know? You, you have to know. So the way, I, I don't know if you've seen the final episode, but the way it's edited, we see Rhonda starting to ramp up and the security guard she's got a thing with comes in mm-hmm. and you you or Dr. Marsh says to Gil, you know, beware of her explosive rage. And, the, right. and it cuts back, but it's a real mic drop line because then the, the way it's edited, it cuts to her starting to beat up the security guard she had been having this fling with kind of thing. <laughs> Do you know that you just nail a line when you come out with it? Like, like we got that take you can move on like cut it and, oh, yeah. and print it yeah oh yeah you can tell you can tell because you know the director comes out and he's real happy he is, he's very very happy with you <laughs> i love it i love it you I feel mean, it that that think that's the take i mean we tried a couple you know and he said well, let's try from some variety let's try this way but yeah you you know when you've done it when it's there and that's when you say now can you turn on the heat a little bit please pretty much please please, <laughs> please. like i've earned it <laughs> Please, or at that point, just give me my coat. Can I get a parka? <laughs> a beanie, something. Something, something. I like that. You go to you go to the showrunners, you say, you know, listen, I think Dr. Marsh wears full parkas <laughs> indoors. I think that's what his character is. Oh, oh you can say that, but trust, trust me, costume <laughs> designers on set or, or, or watching on video, you don't put on anything she doesn't want you to have on. Yeah, that's awesome. He's a real Bernie's mittens guy you know can we get some yeah. mittens on dr marsh <laughs> yeah i think i think he has a yeah it's really cold in here he should wear something warm <laughs> it goes to his inner warmth that he has exactly you know, exactly it doesn't look great for dr marsh can you tell us what's next for him was this the last we get to see of him is he going to be back again don't know see that's the thing even mm. the producers made it a mystery for me as i was leaving and they came up to me they said well you never know on prodigal son this is we don't know what's going to happen with Dr. Marsh. So we're not saying he's gone for good and we're not saying that, so they made no promises, but they left it open to interpretation. Let's say that. 
I really wanted to circle back to the beginning. So uh, how do you even audition now? Is this like, was this like a tape audition? Did you know anyone on the show? No, no, no. This was, this was like a lot of these dramas that you've seen me on that you mentioned is guest star spots. This was an offer. They had, because uh, apparently they had said they had wanted me in the pra- in the first season, but I wasn't available. So I guess because I guess they saw some of my Broadway work or they had seen some of the other television work and they asked me. And so it was a straight up offer. Oh, we're going to talk about your Broadway work. Don't you worry oh, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. Oh, we, we've been <laughs> salivating. <Yeah. laughs> We're, we're getting to your Broadway work. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, a fun question that we've been asking the different actors that we've had on the show with us has been, so which of the characters from the show, from Prodigal Son, would you want to spend a pandemic lockdown with? Oh, my Lord. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> or you could make it even Ooh. more narrow or any of Dr. Marsh's patients. If oh, you, if you yeah. Had to spend some... <laughs> oh, none of them. You know, as you see, they tried to, <laughs> they see, they tried to kill me. Yeah. Think yeah. of the paper you could publish, though. Think of the After paper the you could publish. Done, all the good I've done for them, and they tried to kill me. Um, um, you know, Bellamy Young's character is kind of interesting. Oh, okay, Jessica. All right. Yeah, I think Jessica maybe. I like that. Maybe. And because I remember, because I worked with Bellamy many, 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 many years ago on a musical. Believe it or not, a long, long time ago. She's kind of evergreen, though. I mean, I, I've watched her career oh for, goodness, for years. Yeah. And the woman just doesn't age. Uh, she does. She does not at all. Well, if you did quarantine with uh, Bellamy Young's character, you would definitely have plenty of alcohol to keep you warm. See, see, now you, now you see where I'm coming from. I understand. Now you you understand where I'm coming from. (laughs) Hot hot toddies for days. Hot toddies. Now you, now you get it. Keep the whiskey coming. As as promised just a couple minutes ago, we definitely wanted to talk about some of your other work because you've got a resume that really speaks to us. And if we could fanboy a little bit about your Broadway career, and we're not just talking about you originating, you know, Hatim Bey in Book of Mormon, but I go all the way back to, I saw you were part of the New York Theater Workshop for Rent playing Benny yeah. back yeah. when. Yeah. Yeah. Was Broadway your first love when you were thinking about getting into acting? Is that where the passion really kind of came from? I mean, the, the thing that kind of inspired me to go to drama school for it was was, action, was definitely theater. I mean, I was a big fan. Uh, I remember in the 80s watching the Tonys. And uh, I think Fences was on Broadway at that time. And they did, they, at that time, they were still doing little excerpts from the plays. And there was a great scene between James Earl Jones and Courtney Vance. And I thought, how cool. I recognize these people. I know who this is. I could do it. And so I set about to find out where Courtney Vance had gone to school. So that's what got me to drama school to take it, take it seriously. But Broadway, you know, Broadway's always seen as the ultimate. Broadway debut was musicals. I never expected to be in musicals first. You know, my training was classical conservatory. I thought I'd be doing plays when I got to Broadway. The plays came much later. It was the musicals that were a surprise to me that I got to do those first. And it was exciting. It was, you know, intimidating. But you get it. It's another stage. I mean, the stakes are higher. Right. (laughs) The the stakes are The paycheck is higher. (laughs) (laughs) But the the gratification's more instant, though, in a way, isn't it? It really is. It's kind of amazing. It's quite amazing. 
and the audience has very audiences you know they have high expectations when you say broadway they're looking for a big return on that investment which is a pretty heavy investment to go to broadway shows so you better be good you better be on it like all theater fans we're waiting with bated breath for broadway to reopen you know yes, once the yes. pandemic comes down and I, i've been staring at tickets for music man coming you know for september and october like just like mm. should i i i, I don't want to jinx it if i go buy them you know right. and uh right. when it opens back up is that another is that a stage you're looking to get back to i mean you've been you've been blowing up on tv and and you have you know ma rainey's black bottom which we're gonna talk about in a second you know so you've had quite quite the year but i'm curious if there's an itch a broadway itch for you to get back to oh sure sure uh, you know there's nothing like doing it in front of an audience it's the high wire act of that i mean at least in television and movies you can do a couple of takes really the only people you're 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 doing it for yourself and the person who's who, who's kind of judging it at that point would be your director and, and the producers and video village are the only ones who can kind of who kind of respond to what you're doing but an audience responds immediately you hear everything and there's something about that kind of communal experience, that kind of energy of all these people in one room focused on this one thing and this act that you're doing, you know, this magic act you're trying to perfect of convincing people that what they're experiencing is actually happening. It's actually real. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I, you know, and I'm glad about the TV and movie stuff blowing up and I hope it continues to even more. But I'll always come back and do theater. There's nothing like it. What's a show that you would recommend to people they go make sure they catch once Broadway back opens back up again? Play, oh play, play theater critic for a second. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's very diplomatic of you, Mike. Well, you know, wow. listen, we're, gonna, we're, we're giving the times a run for its money. I recommend that they go and see when it returns. See, watch me be diplomatic. That's going to be tough because we don't know what's going to return. <laughs> well, that's very true. That's very true. I was going to say whatever the Michael Potts joint is, you know? <laughs> you know, that's going to be that's going to be a tough one. Michael, we're doing a back we're doing a backdoor pilot right now for our Broadway podcast mm. starring you. So, no, you okay. know, this is this is okay. your time to shine though. Well, really... then I say everybody go back and see the Book of Mormon. Hell yeah! Hell yeah. <laughs> Go back and see the Book of Mormon when it returns. Okay. I mean, you know, everybody's going to be trying to get into Hamilton anyway. If you, if you if you don't think I haven't been singing Asadiga Iboi all damn day, <laughs> you don't even know. We've been singing it to each other over text. <laughs> you want to talk anthem for 2020 and the start of 2021? Oh my god! Oh, isn't it? Isn't it just? Isn't it I can't leave my that? house without a mask. So we get to- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My son, I've made my son a little bit of a theater nerd, and I've shown him Book of Mormon, and, and not uh-huh. I didn't take him to show. He's only twelve, but I've, right. I've exposed him to the music of it. And Uh-oh. I said, I said, I'm interviewing Michael Potts today, and he kind of looked t- to the said, I said, Asadiki Boy. He's like, Oh my god. <laughs> Because he, he sings that song constantly, but he's self-centered. He self-censors himself, you know, uh-huh. punch, him, punch him right back yeah. in his whoop, you know. So, lots of whoops in that song, but he loves it. He loves it. It's a brilliant oh, song. God. It's a brilliant, brilliant number. But, yeah, we were reminded of how much of it is an anthem for everything that we're dealing with right now. Pretty so much, uh, isn't it? It, it draws an underline under everything. So I appreciate that uh, <laughs> as a medium to, you know, have the outlet for my anger. So yes. I just, I wanted yes. to ask you about, so Mike, Mike just mentioned it a couple of minutes ago about mm-hmm. the, the fabulous Ma Rainey's Black Bottom adaptation on Netflix. 
Mm-hmm. So I want to know about your role and learning how to play the bass for your role. Because it oh, looks yeah. pretty authentic. Like when you, I see you playing, like my husband's a guitar player. So, you know, I, I see this all the time. So to me, it looks pretty authentic what you're doing. Good. It looks that way because I'm authentically playing those songs. Excellent. It is Branford Marcellus's band on the soundtrack. But I learned to play the bass and I learned to play all the songs in the show. And this was another one of these great offers because of having worked with Denzel and Iceman Cometh on Broadway and then the season before he had seen me in Jitney. And that's how that role happened. And the trick was George Wolfe, who directed, never told us how well we needed to learn these instruments. Basically, you got an offer and then they gave you a coach. So I had a coach here in New York for a bit and then a coach when we moved to Pittsburgh. And so because I was never told, George never gave up the secret about how well. So the pressure was on to actually learn how to play it. And then I'm in a movie with Viola Davis, Chadwick Boseman, Glenn Turman, and, and Coleman Domingo. <laughs> you know, they're known <laughs> to the movie going and tell, people know who they are. So I couldn't, you know, I couldn't show up unprepared. That's the thing of being a bit of an overachiever anyway. Like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to play this instrument. So I look authentic. You do. And it's something about playing that these musicians, it becomes a part of your body and it kind of informs who you are as a person, too, because you want to go, well, why did he pick the bass? Why is it the bass? Why is it, you know, as opposed to the other guys picking these other different instruments? So it was it was a really, really cool thing to get to learn. And the thing that isn't and about the name slow drag, people don't get that in the movie. There's a whole scene in the play that explains it. I don't know if you know the play, but it's basically his nickname, not his real name. Right. Because uh, I don't think any mom would be that mean to be like, I'm going to name my newborn son Slow Drag. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, no, that was really cool. I loved, uh, and if I had room in my tiny New York apartment, I would have a bass. (laughs) I would have an upright (laughs) bass and I'd still be playing. That's fantastic. So this was Chadwick Boseman's last on-screen performance, correct? Mm, Yes. So, yeah. So what was that like working with him? And, and oh. knowing how, like, I mean, you can see in, in his character, in in his performance here, that he's headed downhill physically. He's a yeah. lot skinnier and, and things like that. So, um, yeah. But here's the tell- thing. You, you couldn't tell that when he was working. And it wasn't anything unusual. In my mind, you know, when I see it, I just call it Hollywood skinny. Because when right. I go out to right. L.A., everyone is, is a stick. Everyone is so tiny, just these big heads on these tiny bodies. (laughs) So it didn't seem out of place to me at all. In my mind, I'm going, yeah, when you go to, when you get to Hollywood, when you become a movie star, I see it. You see the transformation all the time. People get really, really thin. You got that Marvel body, you know, you got to have that that Black Panther picture. That's what happens. Or you think it's because they're working on their next role, that they're losing the weight to get in, to, to, to get ready for their next performance. So it never hit me as that. And he never gave any indication that he was ill because yeah. you can, you didn't see it in his face. You didn't, you can almost tell when someone is not well by their eyes or by the pallor of their skin. Right. There was none of that. And he was as, as, as vibrant, <laughs> as engaged, as hardworking, this man, you know, he's working a full 12 hours. It's astonishing now why it's, it's devastating when you look back to go, you're kidding me. Because right. those monologues, he would do those six times in a row or more. And the energy and the intensity is there. What it took for him to do that, and it was, all of that intensity was there. And you think, well, maybe it's because he knew he was having his own personal conversation with God at that point. Right. That some of this 
resonated differently for him, not just for the character of Levy, but was resonating for, for Chad. But he was lovely to work with. I mean, he was as humble, as gracious and generous as you wanted to be. We became like brothers as part of being this group, this band. I mean, we would go out and drink to, you know, go out for drinks together, go out and have dinner together. And he was just, just a, just a dear, dear man, aside from the talent, just getting to know who he was. It was just incredible. So that's why it was, it was shocking to me. I mean, I, you know, Coleman and I got, got on the phone and we were just like a puddle because we couldn't believe it. I think I think it was a collective moment of everyone just being shocked because he held it, it together it so well, you know. And it was such a shock. You never, never for a second thought something was wrong or that he wasn't completely in tip-top shape because that's the impression he always gave you, always. And it was always about the work. He always just focused on the work, never about himself at all. He was more interested in what you were doing. When I look at your career... I, I, I told I mentioned Rent, which I'm a big Rent head, so maybe I'm a little biased. But Rent coming in 1994, 95, Broadway 96 is is an important play. It's important musical mm-hmm. for the time. I look at yes. your TV credits through the 2000s. You're you hit all of the important shows. I mean, from Oz and the Wire to you know True Detective to the Law and Order shows. Now you're on. Um, uh, Prodigal Son and, and everything in between. You're Madam Secretary. I mean, you're you you've hit all of the shows. You're doing Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, probably an Oscar contender. It seems you're always at in the zeitgeist for the time, and 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 I don't mean that to like kiss up to you or blow smoke up your butt or anything, but it's true. It, it, the facts are what they are. So I'm curious: Do you view your career as kind of being in the right place at the right time and luck, or is it you just more of a keen eye about the roles that are going to be significant? You know, when you look back on them, I think it's a, it, it's probably a little bit of both because a lot of those shows you mentioned are things that I didn't have to work as hard to get into. It was more that they were looking for me. It was the same thing with True Detective, although I had auditions and callbacks for it. You know, they said at the at the end, they said, well, we always wanted you. So it was just a question of whether the chemistry would work with whoever else that they had attached to it. I think it's a bit of luck. And if you if you say luck is that thing of of being prepared when an opportunity comes, yeah. The goal is to always be prepared, to train hard and to make sure everything that I do, I try to do it to a very high standard because somebody's always watching. Someone is always paying attention. And so I want to I, I want to do it for that reason. Um, and I do. I do. I, I do. As I've gotten older and, and into my career, become a bit more selective about what I will audition for. I mean, it's an interesting thing, you know, and I look at my career, it's very funny. You know, I don't book 99.9% of the things I audition for. People would be shocked to find out all these things you see me in in television and movies or what have you. Usually, and now even in theater, are things that people have asked me to do. And I audition like crazy. And they're good. (laughs) (laughs) I turn in some really good stuff. In fact, I have to tape something tonight to send off to the agent. So they're good. So it's, it's always, it's interesting to me because I've tried to make choices and uh, they haven't always panned out, but the right things have somehow found me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. does. We're the better for it. 
honestly. Yeah. Our listeners love, okay, us too, love any type of like behind the scenes information. If there is any particular moment or memory from the set for me, for you that stands out as a favorite besides getting the heat to work in the cop car. <laughs> Anything that stands out. I, I think, I think, I think the behind the scenes thing was when I'm charged by the, after I revealed the gold card and I get cold cocked. <laughs> and the actor, oh God, Clay, he comes running at me. And the way they shot it the first couple of times, he gets in a panic as if he's coming to charge me, but he has to run past me for the shot. <laughs> so he kept doing that over and over again. He, he was in it, the character, and he's coming to charge at me and just runs right past me. So funny. And I just got the giggles and I couldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> then everybody else started giggling. Oh, no give me the stop. gag reel on that, please. Oh, I, I mean, in the most... final cut, you have this look of shock, like, he's about to hit me, and like, then he does. It's not registering what's about to happen, <laughs> yeah. and then, yeah. A real I'm deer in the headlights moment. It's fantastic, yeah. Seven times, and I just couldn't. Every time he ran past me, it was the most hysterical thing. <laughs> I, I would turn and go, where, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, well, I, I hope Dr. Moments. Marsh is back because I just loved your character in this episode. Thank you. you, thank you. Just so much, so much going on that I was just like, I need some more Dr. Marsh. So thank you for Yay. that. I mean, Tell him. Call the producers. Tell him. I will. <laughs> listen, producers, listen, you need to have him back. Seeing what we saw tonight, just knowing that there's, there's so much going on with Dr. Marsh, too. Like, that could be another little, you know, vignette to keep coming back. So I like Dr. Marsh. I'm here for you, Dr. Marsh. I thank you. Well, I think thank there's something you. really identifiable about him, right? The idea, yeah. the, the feeling of being desperate to, to prove that the thing that you've devoted yes. your life to works. He's, yeah. got, he's got a motivation I think a lot of us can understand. But maybe we could see him back as a patient. Maybe he goes insane and he becomes like Martin's new, uh, <laughs> new roommate, you know? You know, because I mean, like, that is like a fireable offense, you know? Which one? Me. He's got several fireable offenses. No, no. They, they were just mistakes. There's like the, the stripping of your license, perhaps, you know? No, no, no. It was an honest mistake. I think they're going to let me off. I love it. I love it. We're gonna see. I helped them solve. I helped them solve it. You did. You did. I helped you did. them solve the crime. You did. You did. I mean, well, I think maybe we'll see you running therapy sessions, but it'll be like pretend running it. Like you'll you'll actually be a patient at Claremont. Like Friar Pete's not really giving religious counsel, but right. you know yeah. he's there exactly. anyway. Exactly. Michael, you've been so great, and you've spent a lot of time with us today. Where? Thank you. What comes next for you, Prodigal Son? Aside. I don't know. And, and, you know, we're trying to get more work. This is pilot season, such as it is, you know, during the t during a pandemic. Sure. And, you know, there are things that were canceled from Broadway. Piano Lesson was supposed to be happening right about now, which has now been pushed back to 2022. Yeah. So that is the only thing I'm contracted for right now. Maybe uh, I just talked to someone about a movie shooting in Chicago next month sometime. So that may be happening. I'm still working out the details and seeing what's what. But that's about it. Well, definitely. I mean, in the meantime, people should definitely be writing to the producers to bring back Dr. Marsh campaign mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, and going to check you out on Ma Rainey's uh, Black Bottom on Netflix. Please so. do. Please do. Yes. Do you know your social media accounts? Do you want to give them out uh, where people can follow you, keep in touch with uh, Sure. On? Yeah. On Instagram, it's uh, mpot 62 
And on Twitter, it's uh, Michael Potts NYC. A guy who puts his NYC in there. That's someone that you want to follow because that's, that's, are you, are you a New Yorker born and raised or just kind of adopted city? Born and been back and forth most of my life. I spent a large portion of my early years in South Carolina going to school there. And then it just back and forth summers mm-hmm. and then flipping it for a little bit. Once I got into junior high school and finished that and college undergrad did it all here in New York. So it's about half and half. We're born and bred New Yorkers here, so we're always always happy to meet another fellow member. Uh, thank you so much for coming on The Surgeon's Files and hanging out with us tonight. We appreciate pleasure, it. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank, thank you. you for having me. Guys, uh, definitely go check out Michael Potts and all that he's done. Follow him on social media and uh, definitely check him out on Prodigal Son. Go back and uh, catch him from the first episode of the season and uh, tonight's episode. Hey guys, we're back. What a great interview with Michael Potts. Thank you so much for staying on. I mean, we were on the phone with him for, God, over 40 minutes, not on the phone, but we were recording with him for over 40 minutes and he was just really open with us and it was a real treat to talk to him. So I hope the producers hear his petition and give him some more time. We get, Maybe we get him as a patient at Claremont now going forward. Uh, I would love to see him back. I think he's a nice fit. I think he's got a nice personality that fits in well with the Claremont crew. So, and, and here's some more episodes at Claremont. I love this. I love this. I love seeing Adresa at Claremont. Let's get to Adresa's corner. What did you think of her banter with Martin? She finally, she's, she, she finally meets Malcolm's dad. She was the last one, right, from the team to meet him. I believe yes. I believe so. I, yes. The the need for her to like tell herself that she's going to play it cool was just everything Adresa for me, and she was just so delighted in. He was exuding this dark chemistry, and she was just here for it. She was being drawn in and sucked into his his uh, seductive sphere. I didn't get the joke about the chai, the bone fragments of the chai. I'm like, I know chai tea like strengthens your bones, but they definitely hit it off in such a way. And Martin was he was doing his manipulation. He was he was flattering her and hitting all the right notes to make Adresa just fall in love with him head over heels. Yeah, I mean, this is where Gil really had his other kind of putting people, speaking truth to power part of his episode. He didn't have a bunch of his own storyline tonight, but twice in this episode, he had to kind of cold water Adresa and her fangirling uh, of uh, her fangirling of Martin. I mean, he he has to remind her in the courtyard, this guy killed 23 people, like, stop it. <laughs> and then later, she's having like a phone a friend conversation with him in the morgue. And he says, you need to make new friends after he hangs up on Martin. So, yeah, I mean, you could see if if Adresa digs malcolm for malcolm's brain and the way his dark mind the darkest parts of his mind work well the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree so imagine the catnip that martin whitley must be (laughs) for adresa i mean my when my cat plays with his catnip toy i call it kitty crack i mean martin whitley is adresa crack if there ever was any like malcolm is the watered down version right so you've got like the, the the concentrated version in Martin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Martin is the uncut heroin for Adrice's drug that she's pushing. Um, and I got to end the chemistry between the two of them was fantastic because when two super smart people start talking in jokes that no one else gets at the party because we're all too dumb to understand them, that was what it was like watching these two at work. And you know how that makes Gil feel. I mean, the eye rolling was, you could almost hear his eyes rolling back around again. They were rolling so hard.
great great to see Idrissa finally meet the elder Whitley and great to see her again just on the case I, I'm loving how they're using her this season I do hope she gets another Death's Door like episode where she becomes heavily involved in a plot maybe has her own episode or two uh, she de-escalates the tension in such a great way every week she's a, she's a pure delight also it was really interesting to get a look at Idrissa into her past with um, her friend Carly marrying her high school boyfriend in the Galapagos and, and her statement her confession that she's i've seen plenty of turtles oh my god when she bumps (laughs) when she uses her backside to bump close the drawer that has a dead body in it it's jerry yeah it's it's so it's so passive aggressive the the you know that she gives when she's Mm -hmm. recounting this trauma of carly and her high school boyfriend getting married on the galapagos islands yeah it was it was so well delivered only someone like Keiko Logana could deliver that line. I, I think I, I don't know that anyone else, no matter what your comedy chops, can deliver it just like she does. She really is that character so so well. It, everything about her makes me laugh. So uh, yeah, super great work. The uh, I've seen plenty of turtles. Really really funny. <laughs> you know, we had a little another glimpse into the Milton family. So why don't you give people a little bit of the uh, significance of this carpet that uh, this rug that Hans the very judgmental interior designer was so upset about oh god he was so spot on with his his skinny millennial comment but jessica when she calls martin to you know chit chat about the kids she mentions that they threw out grandma milton's rug you know the one that ataturk gave her and i'm like hmm ataturk so you know i go to google because i'm a student of history i'm like i know this name the only Ataturk I know, Mike, is Kamal Ataturk, and he was the first president of the Republic of Turkey from, like, 1923 to 1938 when he died. So I would like to know, what was Grandma Milton up to? Nothing good. I mean, listen, no no rich person from the 1800s or the early 1900s was doing anything good to make their money. You know, yeah. there, there was no philanthropy going on to earn money. People only became philanthropists once they had a shit ton of money. I mean, there was like genocide and shit going on in Turkey, like, you know, in the in the teens and the early 20s. So there was like civil war. So I just my mind is going all kinds of dark places. Genetically, I'm sure the Miltons aren't too far from the Whitleys when it comes to blood and murder. So every time we get an answer on the show, it really pulls back three more questions. Uh, And, you know, just finding out that the Miltons had involvement with, you know, Ataturk is just another another peel off the onion of who are these people why do we love them so so much i don't know about you mike but i've seen plenty of turtles <laughs> for sure for sure there was a line that perfectly encapsulates why people like martin are so hard to dislike towards the end of the episode when Rhonda pulls the taser and puts it up against martin's temple he turns to malcolm who's laying on the floor and he says you know i meant every word of it son it was the best day ever and then he gives him a wink how can you dislike this man? No matter, yes, he's a killer, but you see why Adresa likes him. You see why he's so charming. You see how he was able to get so close to people in order to kill them. How he was able to get the girl in the box in the first place. You see it. He's 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 so much charisma, and he's not all bad, right? And that's his whole point. He's problematic because he's not black and white bad. He's had plenty of opportunities since we've met him to do some pretty rotten shit, and he has pulled back, so. Which is just another way to endear him to us and, and yeah like that best day ever like the wink i, I was just like oh martin <laughs> meant every word of it son best day ever wink oh the wink anyway the wink. and then his new york accent that came out when he was angry i was just like hmm. 
I'm here for all of this. All right, guys, that takes us to the end of this episode of The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila. If you could head on over to where you get this podcast from to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast so you get notifications whenever we drop new episodes. And if you could leave us a five-star rating and review, that would help other people find this show. And we would just be eternally grateful. Thank you so much. Remember, you come for the discussion. You stay for the skulking, the violence, and the banter. Oh, that's why I'm here. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.